Well, as James mentioned at the start, this is uh, one of two occasions in the year when we just take a step back as a church and we remind ourselves who we are as a church and why we do what we do. And that's the idea behind these tables with these balloons on, which are on the ground floor, which during the soup lunch, we hope that you'll wander around and you'll think, you'll perhaps pray, you'll reflect as to how God wants you to be involved in the life of this church. We would really love for everybody to be praying, everybody to be giving, both financially and also in time, and for everybody to be serving in some way. Everybody praying, everybody giving, and everybody serving. Because church doesn't just happen. And the reality is that the world that you and I live in, the culture that you and I live in, the society that you and I live in, has never been in a more perilous state than it is now. It's been said, hasn't it, that there are three things, lies, damned lies, and statistics. And if you want to uh, prove something, uh, well, then you find a statistic that will go with the answer that you want. And we all know how reliable surveys are. You look at the uh, opinion polls before the last general election, and they were so successful on uh, predicting the outcome that an independent commission has been set up to find out uh, what went wrong. I don't think anyone's realized that the same people are asking the questions who asked the questions about the polls that they're going to um, survey as to why they didn't work, but hey, we'll work that one out. Um, but two surveys have been commissioned recently that explore or try and give a picture of what the church in Scotland is like and also what faith uh, down south is like. So it's this report. Um, it's uh, been commissioned uh, and conducted by the Barna Group, which, who are professional um, market researchers. It's a big firm. It's, it's owned by Christians in America, and, and they're, they're very reliable. Um, they used Mori, uh, who also did the polls before the general election, so you can rely on everything that's <laughs> written in here. Um, and they surveyed um, the general population in Scotland, and then they also surveyed Christians, and they surveyed uh, ministers and they surveyed church leaders and they looked at churches that were growing and the churches that were struggling. <coughs> at the same time, excuse me, there was a, a second bit of work that was done called Talking Jesus and this was done south of the border and uh, in England they asked people who weren't Christians what their perceptions of the Christian faith were, what their perceptions of Jesus was what their perceptions of Christians were, and also how they responded to evangelism when we share our faith with other people. And the outcomes were, well, some were surprising, others merely confirmed what we thought. In Scotland, Transforming Scotland found that 12% of the population are now practicing Christians. Uh, those of us who would identify as evangelical Christians are only 5% of the population. That means that you could uh, put all the evangelicals in Hampden Park, Murrayfield, and Easter Road. And not only would it be the biggest crowd that any of those three stadiums have seen for years, uh, but that would be the entire sum of the evangelical constituency in the church in Scotland. When they talked to people who were out with the church they found some interesting stats. 70% of Scots are not interested in religion at all. 
while 61% think the church has nothing really to offer them. Get this, 63% of Scots have never read the Bible. 63% of Scots have never read the Bible. So were they by some mischance to find themselves in church, the last thing you should say is, when you're preaching, for example, you know the story about, because most people don't. 63% of the culture, the society, the nation that you and I now live in have never read the Bible. However, somehow, 55% have an overall favorable impression of Christianity. 61% of Scots say Christianity is good values and principles, while 69% believe that church is a favorable thing for a community to have. They don't go there, but they think it's a good thing that we're here even if they don't come. Now, when it came to describing Christianity, though, Scots were more negative than the English. 23% of Scots thought Christianity was incompatible with science, 21% thought it was judgmental, and 20% thought that Christians were hypocritical, compared with only 10% of English people who thought that Christians were hypocritical. So either the Christians in England are less hypocritical or the English non-Christians aren't telling the whole truth. But in England, they were much more generous. Only 15% of us, don't worry if you can't read all the writings, it goes from friendly, caring, good-humoured, generous, encouraging, and helpful from left to right. But 15%, only 15% of us thought of as narrow-minded. Only 9% of English people said we were uptight, and only 7% of English people thought that Christians were homophobic, which was fascinating. 65% of those asked in England thought Christians were friendly, 51% thought they were caring, and 48% thought that we were good-humoured. So friendly, caring, and good-humoured. We are like golden Labradors. 38% of non-Christians thought that Christians were generous in England. Strangely, they didn't ask Scots that question, whether they thought we were generous or not. But where the Scots really triumphed over the English was in what's called the next generation, the so-called millennials, Generation X and Generation Z, people the same sort of age as James our curate and Mark, who was leading worship. People in the 18 to 30 age bracket. People in that age bracket in Scotland showed far greater openness to spiritual things than their English counterparts. They were far more likely to want to know what the Bible has to say about relationships or how they should spend their money or what they should do with their lives than people in England of the same age. And that age group, the 18 to 30, are also passionate about social justice and social transformation. So as I think of my own kids, um, they are passionate about those areas. If you want to, to just be talked at for half an hour, ask my eldest son about social justice and social transformation, and 30 minutes later, you might get a word in edgeways, and then you might be allowed to leave. But he's passionate about it. His faith 
compels him to want to change the world in which we live. Now, if the Scots in that age group are more open than their English counterparts, the reality of the church in Scotland is very different to the church in England. And these figures really are chilling. The decline in the church in Scotland is happening at a much faster rate than it is south of the border. In the last five years, in those attending and being members of the church in Scotland, there has been a 27% decline. That's in the last five years, the number of people attending church in Scotland has declined by 27%. 27%, That's over a quarter. Now, our brothers and sisters in the Church of Scotland have it the worst. They've declined by 35% in the last five years. Now, in England, the decline is still happening, but it's leveled off at around 7%. Now, if you were to go back 10 years, 20 years, you would probably find that the church rate of decline in England was pretty steep. So it was very steep when I worked in England, and now I work in Scotland, it's, it's steep here as well, which is really good news. Now in England, it's sort of bottomed out, and they're starting to see signs of growth. In, in the Church of England, there are dioceses now where it's increasing. The Diocese of London, the Diocese of Exeter, for example, Diocese of Worcester, they're starting to see things have bottomed out, and things are starting to grow again. Theologically and ecclesiology-wise, Scotland is 20 years behind England. Now, we can learn lessons from what's happened in the Church of England and the Church in England, but the reality is that these figures should send a shudder through every mainline denomination. 27% decline in the last five years. That's why it cannot be business as usual for the church. We cannot somehow expect to carry on doing church in the way that we have done for the last 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, and somehow expect things to be different. It was Albert Einstein who said that to do the same thing time after time and expect different results is one definition of insanity. If you carry on doing the same thing, you will get the same results. More of the same will produce result more of the same. So we have to find ways of thinking about church differently. It's why we can't sit and think, we're doing well at P's and G's. We can't look around and think, well, church is pretty full this morning and think we're doing okay. We may be doing okay in comparison to some other churches. But the state of the nation is such that we cannot stay as we are. There's another statistic that Transforming Scotland uh, discovered um, that I've quoted a few times over the past few weeks. They discovered that 76% of church leaders in Scotland are over the age of 50. Now, there's nothing wrong with being over the age of 50. I am over the age, I know I don't look it, but I am over the age of 50. 
But 76% of church leaders in Scotland are over 50. And get this, in the next 10 years, 50% of that 76% are going to retire. 50% of church leaders of the 76% who were over 50 are going to retire in the next 10 years. And there's one other statistic which blew my mind. Despite all the changes in the church in Scotland, 87% of church leaders in Scotland are still male. 87%. So we have to train younger leaders, and we have to train more women leaders to lead churches. Again, the church in England has made great strides to train younger leaders and more women over the past decade, but Scotland is way behind the curve on this one. Now, why do numbers matter? Why do statistics matter? Well, numbers matter because each number is actually a person. Or they represent 10 people. Or they represent 100 people. But they're not just statistics. They are people. People that God loves, people that God made, people made in the image of God for whom he died. And it strikes me that if you look at the stories that Jesus told, again and again, he includes numbers. In the parables, the stories that Jesus told, they are full of numbers. But often the focus is on the minority, not the majority. It's on the one, not the ninety-nine. So take that passage that Julie read for us a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 18. The story of the wandering sheep. Jesus is again explaining to his followers about the nature of the kingdom of God. That's where we find Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. If you've got your Bible open or your smartphone open, uh, have a look at that passage again. He's been explaining, as he does through the parables, the nature of the kingdom of God, what it's like to live under God's rule, what it's like to live under God's authority, what society would be like characterized by God's guidelines for living. But despite being with him for nearly three years by this point, the disciples still don't get it. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly reassuring that they have Jesus right in front of them. They can touch him. They can smell him. They can listen to him. They're face to face with him. They're with him for three years, but they still don't get it. That brings hope for me, that even though I've been a Christian all these years and there are things I don't understand, well, actually, they had him right in front of them, and they still didn't understand things. So what do the disciples say to Jesus when he starts to teach them about the kingdom of God? Well, Chapter 18 and verse 1, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's their first question. Not what's it going to be like, not how should we change our lives, but who is the greatest? They're concerned about status and power and position and influence. And what Jesus does is he brings a child forward as a visual aid. Now, in, in the culture that Jesus lived in, children weren't just seen and not heard they weren't seen they weren't important jesus brings a child in front of the disciples and says unless you change and unless you become like a little child 
you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Never mind all the debates about who's first and who's sixth and who's seventh and who's eighth. Unless you change and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is doing is trying to explain the radically different nature and feel of the kingdom of God. It doesn't follow the usual rules. It doesn't follow the world standards. It doesn't follow our criteria about who is important and who's not. And as the chapter starts to unfold, Jesus explains to his disciples the radical nature of belonging to that kingdom. He says, verse 10, don't despise the little ones. You notice that? Don't despise the little ones. Now, who are the little ones that Jesus is talking about? It's not just children. They're included, but there are other people that Jesus is referring to. He's referring to people who are on the edges. And he's saying, if you can't make them a priority, if you can't be sensitive to them, if you don't see them as people, then that's a hindrance to you fully participating in the life of the kingdom of God. And so he says, verse 8, if you can't reach out in generosity to the poor, then cut off your hand. It's quite radical, isn't it? If you can't reach out in generosity to the poor, then cut off your hand. If your feet won't take you to where you should go and serve the poor, if your feet, sort of metaphorically, won't take you to the Bethany care van, then you should cut off your foot. If your eye leads you to look at somebody, perhaps a big issue seller or somebody begging on the street or, or somebody who's struggling on the margin, somebody who's unemployed, somebody who's under stress, um, somebody who's struggling with mental health, um, somebody who in some way our society marginalizes and dismisses, if your eye can't enable you to see them as God sees them, as a human being made in the image of God, then you should pluck your eye out. If your hands won't do what God wants you to do, if your feet won't take you where God wants you to go, if your eyes won't see as God sees, then get rid of them, Jesus says. And he goes further, verse 10, he says, don't despise these little ones. That word for despise means a wounding act of contempt. It means to, to walk by and just dismiss them. It means to treat them as a non-person. And it means, them that you, it means that you dismiss them with a label. And that label might be a refugee, or a migrant, or the homeless, or the mentally ill. You see, when you label people, they... They stop being people. They become a thing, a block. And we can ignore blocks. But when you give names to people, then they remain people. Jesus says, don't despise the little ones. Don't have a wounding act of contempt towards them. Jesus says his kingdom isn't like that. It's full of grace and love, mercy and truth. It really is a kind of politics before Jeremy Corbyn even dreamt up the phrase. This is the kind of politics, the kingdom of God. It's where the little ones are not despised, but welcomed. It's where those that society wants to marginalize, those that society wants to dismiss, 
They're given value and worth and dignity and acceptance. And that's how we treat them because that is how Jesus treats us, with value and worth and acceptance and dignity. Now, how does that impact who we are as a church? It impacts it in this way. Our vision as a church is very clear. We set it out two years ago. If you've been around Peace and G's for a couple of years, you're probably familiar with this phrase. Our vision is that we want to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel of Jesus with the whole of society through churches of grace. We want to be people who are growing in our relationship with Jesus so that our relationship with Jesus affects and permeates every single area of our lives. It's not just for Sunday, it's for Monday through to Saturday. It's not a sort of leisure pursuit for people who are into that thing. It permeates every waking and sleeping moment of our lives, 24-7. It affects the way in which we treat people at work. It affects the way in which we think about our jobs. It affects the way in which we think about the places where we study. It affects the way in which we think about relationships. It's the way, it affects the way in which we think about our future, and it affects the way in which we think about our past. Whole life disciples. Because Jesus is not simply interested in spiritual life. He's interested in life, the whole of our lives. How are we going to do that? Well, partly through everybody giving, everybody praying, everybody serving. But there were four sort of arrows that we named two years ago, or pillars of our strategy, discipleship, church planting, theological education, and social transformation. So how are we doing in each of them two years in? Well, the first arrow, theological education. Just a reminder again of that statistic, 76% of church leaders being over 50, together with 50% of them retiring in the next two years, text 10 years, and 87% of them being male. We cannot train people in the way that we've been training people to lead churches. We have to consciously begin to train younger leaders, and we have to train female leaders as well. And that's why we've been engaged in conversation with St. Melitus, this college in, uh, in London that's just developed this way of training people for ordained leadership in the church, which has transformed the way in which people think about leadership and ordination training. Now, St. Melitus, they started seven years ago with seven students. Next year, they will be training 200 people for the ordained ministry in the Church of England, the vast majority of whom will be under the age of 35. And we asked you to pray for a meeting that took place a couple of weeks ago now between the principal of St. Melitus, Graham Tomlin, and the principal of the Scottish Episcopal Institute. That's our, our training institution, uh, Anne Tomlinson. And I want to say thank you very much for praying. Um, it was as good a meeting as we could have had. And there was a real meeting of hearts and minds, and uh, there's a proposal that's going to go to the Council of St. Melitus and the Council of the Scottish Episcopal Institute about a pilot scheme whereby the two could partner with each other over the next two or three years to begin to explore what it might mean to train people 
in this what's called mixed mode way where they would be on the staff of a church one day uh, four days a week and training the rest of the time and studying three days a week so it's begun we've got a foot in the door humanly speaking it will still be a miracle if this happens there are so many obstacles to overcome some of them theological many of them financial some of them historical that it will be a miracle if this happens so please please pray because we happen to believe in a God who's quite good at miracles but we need to go on praying secondly church planting uh, 15 months ago uh, we sent Dean off to All Souls Fife and uh, he's made a really good beginning getting to know the churches and establishing a, a contemporary service in the school there and um, now is the crucial bit over the next six months many of the courses that we take for granted at Peace and Cheese things like the parenting course and the marriage course and the alpha course and the cap course cap money they're going to be rolled out in Fife um, they're just about to start a parenting course in Abadour. Now, the place, the school, where the contemporary service happens is surrounded by estates that are full of young families. If you go to the contemporary service at the moment, you won't find many young families. You will find lots of people like me. Handsome. <laughs> deluded. But in their mid-50s, mid-40s. Because they're like Dean. It's been said that if you look at most church leaders, they minister most effectively to people 10 years older and 10 years younger than they are. So Dean's praying for, for money to employ a community worker, somebody younger, somebody who will be able to get into these estates, somebody who will get into the schools, somebody who will be able to make relationships with these young families so that the church there will start to grow. So please pray for Dean and Elizabeth. I'm seeing Dean on Tuesday, and I'll find out more about how he's getting on. But please be praying for him, because the next six months really is the crucial phase for All Souls Five. But don't just pray for them with regard to church planting. Be praying for us. Where is the need in the city, or indeed somewhere else, that God might put upon our hearts where he might call us to plant another church. You see, as I said before, we cannot stay as we are. The situation in the church in Scotland is so bad, so dire, so grim, that we have to look at parts of the city, perhaps, where there's not a lively, growing church, and say, is God calling us to plant a congregation there? So challenged and proud of, of Destiny Church, under their leader, Pete Anderson, their ambition over the next four years is to plant another four congregations in Edinburgh. They've already got two, and they're looking at particular parts of, of, of the, the city. They're about to plant one uh, in Granton and Pilton uh, this month, and then their aim is to plant three more in the next four years. 63% of Scots have never read the Bible. Only 12% of Scots identify as practicing Christians. 
Now, for the 90% of the population who were out there, they couldn't give a monkey's hoo-ha. Whether we're Episcopalian, Baptist, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, Evangelical, it doesn't matter to them. So we need to find ways in which we can complement other churches that are planting churches in the city rather than competing with them and looking for different areas or perhaps other towns where God might be calling us to go and plant a church, where God might be calling you to be part of a church plant. Some of you may not hear this vision talk in two years' time because you won't be here. Maybe I won't be here. Because God will have called you or me somewhere else. We don't know. We need to be open to God and what he's saying. Thirdly, social transformation. This is the one where we've made the greatest strides in the ministry of the church. I know lots of you are involved through your work, through the social services or through the health service, um, through the legal system, through the police service, you're involved in social transformation. You are making the place, the city in which we live, a better place. Two years ago, God spoke very clearly to Rich and to the vestry, and we, we stepped out under Rich's leadership, and now we do soul food. And every Saturday afternoon, 100 people will come as guests, and they're given a banquet. They're not given a meal, they're given a banquet. And 50 of you serve most weeks, together with Rich and a couple of interns as it's developing. And you serve people and you give them dignity, you give them worth, you give them acceptance, you give them value. And the meal is just a, a conduit, if you like, to begin a relationship, a conversation. It takes up a lot of Rich's time dealing with quite... Um, fractured and dysfunctional pastoral situations as he spends time getting to know these guys. But would you pray for Rich and would you pray for Ellie and for David as they work alongside Rich, exploring and praying through what God might be saying to us as to how we develop soul food into the future. What effects and consequences might there be where we might want to go into other people's lives in a deeper way, not just giving them hospitality and a banquet which is great and a friendship which is brilliant but maybe starting to help them in other ways that would help them perhaps get some of their lives back on track and then fourthly and finally discipleship and this is where it gets personal this is where it comes down to each and every single one of us and if we're honest this is the one upon which all the rest stand or fall if our relationship with Jesus individually and corporately is not growing, is not becoming livelier, is not becoming more aware of the power and the presence of God, then all that we're doing is we're putting on courses, we're putting on programs, we're coming up with some clever ideas and we're saying some words. If our relationship with God is not becoming more important, more vital, more growing, more lively, then all we are are a religious club that comes together every Sunday to sing songs. They're quite good songs. I wasn't sure about the new one, but they're quite good. <laughs> but we're not just a religious club. We don't gather on a Sunday 
just to sing songs and get religious feelings. We're here to be, together with other churches in the city, a living embodiment of the kingdom of God. We're here to show people what it would be like for God to be involved in people's lives. That if they were to come to know Jesus for themselves, then they could have what we have. In that story that Jesus told, there's a bit of a difference in Matthew's version of the lost sheep to Luke's version. In Luke's version, the shepherd very clearly is God. It goes alongside the parable of the lost coin, and it goes alongside the parable of what's called the prodigal son, but really is the prodigal father, because it's the father who behaves prodigiously, outrageously, extravagantly, generously. And that the lost sheep parable comes as the first of those three stories. The only time that Jesus told three stories on the same theme, one after the other, it's as though he was trying to get his point across. But in Matthew's version of the story, it's subtly different. In Matthew's version of the story, the shepherd is not God. In Matthew's version, Jesus envisages a community that shares the shepherd's heart. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the embryonic church. He's talking to people like you and people like me. And he's saying, I want you to be the shepherds. I want you to have a concern for the one sheep that's lost. I want you not to be concerned about the 99, but I want you to be the one who's concerned about the one. It's a communal thing. It's a corporate thing, as well as an individual thing. Now, Libby, when she joins us, Libby Tolbert, our new associate rector in January, um, she will help us think through discipleship. She will help us think, how can we encourage each other to grow as Christians? And at the end of the day, we are all responsible for our own spiritual growth. Each of us will give an account to God for how our relationship with God has grown and deepened. Yes, those of us who preach and teach, we will have to give an account and we'll be held more responsible. But each of us will stand before God one day and give an account of our lives and what we've done with it. And it's in the light of that that one of the statistics, um, it's actually from the English survey, um, has, been, has stayed with me. And it's not just the score from last night's Rugby International. But towards the end, they, they asked people who became Christians, what, what was important to you? What was the big influence in how you became a Christian. And this is quite revealing. Going on a course, 5%. Alpha or Christianity Explored, only 5%. New forms of church like messy church or cafe church, 1%. Only 1%. The two major influences in people becoming Christians... 41% was growing up in a Christian family. And 28% was having a Christian friend, work colleague, or neighbor. Now, on one level, that's nothing new. We have suspected for some time that even if people do come on courses like Alpha, they come because of friendships. They come because of relationships. But 41% of people who answered the survey said that it was the most important 
part of their discipleship was being part of a Christian family. That's why the work that Gemma and James uh, do in our children's and youth department is so important, and we'd love for you to volunteer and help with that if you don't already. That's why the work that James uh, Green does with our students is so important. But there's one other statistic that has just burned into my brain over the last week or so. It turns out that 67% of the population do know a practicing Christian. And of those, 58% of them have had a conversation about faith and Jesus. Now, if I'm honest, I think that's quite high. That's higher than I thought it would be. 58% of people who have a friend who's a Christian have had a conversation with them about the Christian faith and about Jesus. But here's the one that has really stuck with me. Of all those people who've had a conversation with their friend, with their neighbour, with their work colleague, only 16% after the conversation felt sad that they didn't have what their Christian friend had. Only 16%. Now that is perhaps a comment upon the way in which we've helped people or trained people in evangelism. It may be a comment upon the way in which Christians come across. But only 16% felt sad that they weren't a Christian. 42% felt relieved that they weren't Christians and that they didn't have to do evangelism. But only 16% felt sad. Now, I'm not talking about making miserable. According to the survey, we're really good at doing that. But only 16% felt sad that they hadn't got what their friend, their neighbor, their work colleague, their relative had. And that just struck home to me. And I thought, when was the last time that I had a conversation with somebody who wasn't a Christian where I left them feeling sad that they didn't share my faith? Not a conversation as the rector of P's and G's, not a conversation after a wedding or a funeral where the family hope that I'm a Christian, that's a sort of a given, but with a friend, a neighbor, a work colleague, a member of my family who isn't a Christian, when was the last time that I shared my faith in such a way that they were sad that they didn't have what I've got? And that's my challenge for this year. And I think it's a challenge for us as a church. Not to think about the 99, not to think about the 63%, not to think about the 59%, not to think about the 41%, not to think about the 76% of church leaders who are over 50. But to think about one number. And that number is one. Who is the lost sheep that Jesus is calling me, that Jesus is calling you to share your faith with? To do so in such a way that that lost sheep is sad that they don't share my faith and your faith. If each of us, in the course of the next 12 months, were to pray, 
We're to think. We're to build a relationship. We're to have a conversation with one person who is not yet a Christian. This church will be very different this time next year. We wouldn't double in size. That's not what it says in the Bible. Lots of seed is thrown out and only some responds. So we wouldn't double in number. Have to do another building project. We're not doing another building project. We might have to plant a few churches. It wouldn't happen like that. But imagine in a year's time, if all of us had spent time cultivating, spending time with people who, just one person who was not a Christian, and shared our faith in such a way that they felt sad that they hadn't got. Why? Because we radiated the life and the love and the joy and the peace and the hope of Jesus. They could see Jesus living in us. Now that is God's vision for the church. That we should be visual aids of what it's like for God's kingdom to be wholly and fully involved in someone's life. But for that to happen, we need to pray.